All right, so tonight we're going to be looking at question 42 in the Baptist Catechism. And this question has to do with end, um, the end of days, uh, it's particularly the end of, of life for human beings who are walking through this world. And uh, understand that the human is not immortal in, in regards to their flesh. So question number 42 says, but what shall be done to the wicked at their death? And the answer to this question is that the souls of the wicked shall, at their death, be cast into the torments of hell, and their bodies lie in their graves till the resurrection and judgment of the great day. So as we work through these questions, we're seeing here that eternal life is not the sole property of the believer. When we think about eternal life in terms of length of life, all human beings will live eternally, but they will live in one of two very different states. All mankind will endure past this life, but not all will receive the wonderful blessings that we have been speaking about for the last two Sunday evenings. And so two weeks ago, our brother Stephen Kessner uh, came and preached about how the souls of believers at their death are made perfect in holiness. They do immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. So what Stephen was talking about there is what happens to a human being who trusts in the Lord when their physical body dies. Their soul lives on and is glorified, meaning is removed from the sinful state that we exist in now. Um, singing this morning, uh, praises to the Lord in our morning service, I couldn't help but think about how Sarah Meehan is feeling, worshiping the Lord God face to face for the first time, unhindered from the broken body that she has endured for so long. She's had knee pain, she's had hip pain, she's had disorientation and dementia. So for her to be so clear-minded and to be able to look at her Savior and worship Him face-to-face must be a, a tremendous blessing for her. And so that is a wonderful promise that believers get to look forward to upon leaving this world. It takes a lot of the sting of death away to know that when we leave this place, we will be in the presence of God. And then last week, John Williams, our brother, preach also about what happens after the return of Christ to those souls who have been face-to-face with the Lord God but have been existing in a spiritual sense without their bodies. So he preached about how the resurrection will cause believers to be raised up in glory, uh, that they will be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment, and that they'll be made perfectly blessed both in soul and body and the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. So uh, there are kind of two final states for us. There's an intermediate state where we do not have a physical body. Our bodies are still in the grave. Uh, But upon the return of Christ and the second advent, those physical bodies will be raised. They will be renewed and made fit for eternity. And we will be joined again to a physical body, a vessel with which we can serve the Lord and praise Him and worship Him forever. So we were designed to be existing not just in a spiritual state forever as our Lord is, but to be a body with the soul and spirit. And so we are looking forward to both of those stages um, of our next part of our lives. Now, if Christ comes back before we die, we'll skip the intermediate stage, right? We'll go right to the resurrection. And uh, I'm sure for those who experience that, it'll be a special blessing for them. But there is a difference between these two final states. And so we've kind of made a distinction here and we've begun to understand uh, the details of what each of those states does for us and how we are blessed by them. Questions 42 through 43 reveal the opposite side of that coin 
that's been preached in the last two weeks by Stephen and by John. Tonight we're going to talk about how the sinner who has not trusted in Jesus through faith, the, the sinner who has not experienced the grace of God and being forgiven and redeemed, how when they die and their body is, is finished here on earth, they do not enter into heaven, but they do enter into an intermediate state, a state that the Bible often refers to as the grave, a place of darkness and sadness, but not the full manifestation of their eternal punishment. Um, as we're going to learn this week and the next time we come back to work through the next question of the catechism, that there are two phases uh, of post-life experience for the unbeliever as well. The second and final state happens when the Lord returns in the day of judgment, when the wicked dead are raised from the grave and reunited with their bodies, and those bodies will be not the same as our glorified bodies, but in a similar way, they will be bodies fit for eternal judgment. And so this was not always clear to followers of God through the history of his redemptive uh, revelation. Throughout the Old Testament, we see vague snapshots of this intermediate state where wicked souls went to dwell. And so we're going to talk about this concept, which is often called Sheol tonight. How many of you have heard the term Sheol? Sheol is translated literally the grave. Sometimes it's given the name Hades. And so um, this is, uh, in some ways, the best understanding that the Old Testament saint had about what would happen to their bodies after they died. And we see somewhat of a progression over the, the course of God's revelation to his people. So look at how Job spoke of it in chapter 10, verses 20 through 22. Job, of course, has been afflicted. Um, his body is in a very sorry state at the time that this is written. His friends have come alongside him and for a time mourned with him and grieved with him, but now they're in this difficult and awkward debate where they're trying to draw a confession out of their friend Job. And Job is lamenting his, his pain, his suffering, and he says in chapter 10, verse 20, Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone that I might find a little cheer before I go and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order where light is as thick as darkness. So this was the expectation of Job, who is a man of righteousness. Now, this is a man who was close to the Lord, as close as he could be at that time. But he did not have a very clear picture of what lay before him. At best, it was murky and obscure and unknown. What he does know and what we learn from him in the, that passage, something that's very true, is that you don't return from that. Um, some people that you run into from time to time might claim that they've seen a loved one who passed away, might seem a, a vision of them come to them, or that that loved one might have come back and spoken to them. And I know that's sometimes uh, a result of trauma. Some of my loved ones have experienced something like that, they believe. But when we look at the Word of God, which is always true, it tells us that uh, it is appointed once for men to die, and then the judgment. So we don't have this this state where people come back from the grave and interact with those who are here on earth. That's, that's not what Sheol is. Uh, Job knew that when he went to the grave that he would not return to this earth. But what he didn't know was the joy that uh, was waiting for those who trust the Lord God. Isaiah 38 records a similar um, sentiment about Sheol. This is King Hezekiah. Um, his lament to the Lord is recorded in, in Isaiah's prophecy. So in Isaiah 38, verses 10 through 11, Hezekiah says, 
I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of this world. So Hezekiah expected to die. But uh, if you know the story, he pleads to the Lord. and The Lord gives him an extension on life. He doesn't die immediately. But this is his mindset. This is what he believes will happen to him once he dies. And so we don't see a lot of hope there. We see uh, a lot of unknowns. We see that he will not see the Lord in that place. He doesn't expect to be able to worship the Lord in that place. And often Sheol is described as a kind of opposite land to the promised land. So if you try to think about it through the mind of a, of a Hebrew who is in covenant with God, the promised land was a great, wonderful tomorrow that God had promised to bring to them. It was a place of uh, blessing, a place flowing with milk and honey, a place where they would be safe and where they would have independence from the warring nations around them. So the mindset of Sheol was, it was kind of a, a place of desolation. It was the opposite of the promised land. It was a place where there was no flowing milk and honey, and the worship of the Lord was not believed to dwell there. Now again, we're talking about saints who are working with a very limited revelation. God's revelation has not progressed to the point where they have a very clear picture of what to expect. So some of this is speculation, and some of it's not entirely accurate from their point of view. But Isaiah 38, 18 goes on to talk about, and this is in that passage with Hezekiah again. It says, For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. So there's a sense of, sense of hopelessness almost, that those who die are not expecting to, to be in the presence of God. For the, the Hebrew, the idea of worshiping God without the benefit of a physical body was absolutely foreign to them. Think about how the covenants of God between Abraham and then later with Moses and then later with David, how so much of the language of the covenants teaches them to worship in a physical manner, that they are to praise the Lord with their voice, that they are to bring physical sacrifices and shed blood in remission of their sins, that they're to bring grain offerings, that they're to come to a physical location to be in the physical presence of God, that the holiest of holies was where the, the presence of the Holy Spirit was believed to dwell. So for the Hebrew to conceptualize worship of God without physical being was impossible for them to think about. It was outside of the, the realm of their understanding. And I think maybe the opposite is true of, of American believers today where we often don't really think about the physical nature of the eternal state. We should look forward to the resurrection, not just to being some sort of disembodied spirit that worships God in a cloud, but we should be thinking about the greatness that God has promised to give us a physical body back that is better than the bodies that we have now. It's not a body that will be disposable, not a body that's tainted in any way by the curse of sin, so death does not afflict the body that we get to live in for eternity. There will be no more surgeries, Christine. There will be no more sickness, John. There will be... No more limitations. You know, the pain will not be something that we deal with, Ida. It'll be, it'll be done with. That new body that we get to look forward to is a physical body. Amen. So, so much of what we know of life is physical, is tangible. And God did that for a reason. It's not just you know, a very small blip on the map and then we're spirits for the rest of eternity. You know, we're going to be physical beings with spirits, with souls that are going to worship the Lord uh, for eternity. So the Hebrew could not really understand how this place, Sheol, this grave, could still contain worship of the living God. There was no Jerusalem there. There was no temple where they could bring their offerings. They had no mouth with which to sing their bodies in the grave. 
So though the understanding of the Hebrew um, when it came to Sheol was vague at best, we do from time to time, we do get to witness a, a glimmer of hope from the mind and the hearts of the Hebrew people. So I'm going to share a couple of verses with you from, um, mostly from Psalms, a little bit from Isaiah, about that hope. Psalm 913, the psalmist writes, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. So this is one who knows that death is an inevitable reality for him, but he is also praying that the Lord might be gracious. There is a glimmer of light there. There is an, a, a crack in the door that he's thinking, I don't know what's to come, but I'm hoping that maybe the graciousness that I've experienced from God here on earth in this life may even continue and increase in the life to come. So that's Psalm 913, a glimmer of hope. Or we might look again back to that Isaiah 38, 17 passage. Look at this, this little crack of light that shines through the thick darkness of what he sees coming. It says, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, and you have cast all my sins behind your back. So there is this, this looking forward to the redemption that God had promised his people. And here we get a little picture that, that somehow God's going to cast our sins behind his back. And now as the revelation that God has given to his people has progressed over time, we have a clearer picture of that. We do understand that that hope is pointing towards the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that by his perfect and spotless body and blood, that we might be redeemed entirely from our sins. So that death still afflicts this earthly body, which is tainted by the curse. But our soul and spirit will endure beyond that and that we won't be locked to a physical death forever. Eventually, as Israel and Judah transitioned to a time of exile, they began to think differently about promised land. You know, they had received Canaan. They had cast out many of their enemies, but not all of them. And then they had kind of downward spiraled in a, in a pattern of disobedience and neglect of their covenant with the Lord God. And so God allowed in his sovereignty foreign nations to come in and exile them out of that promised land. They no longer had dominion over it. They had lost that blessing. And so the Hebrew mind began to shift and change. And as they dealt with this exile for, for dozens and dozens of years, they began to shift their hope. Their hope began to be planted upon a future restoration of the kingdom that they had lost. This hope that perhaps God would have mercy upon them again, and that he would bring this Messiah that they'd heard about in prophecies such as in Isaiah and the Psalms, this Messiah that would come and restore that dominion that they had lost as a consequence of their rebellion. So the idea that perhaps death was like a time of exile from the body that would be restored with the restoration of the kingly line began to resonate with the Jews. They began to think more about the possibility of death not leading to an ultimate end, the grave, but being an intermediate state, much like their exile was perhaps an intermediate state. And so many began to embrace the idea of the grave leading to somewhere better. And we see evidence of that shift in thinking in one of Jesus' most uh, famous parables. This is in Luke 16. So if you've got your Bible and you want to open up to Luke 16, I apologize for not having slides. It's been a wild week and uh, I was able to prepare for preaching, but I just didn't have time to do some of the extra things I like to do that make our study a little easier. So if you've got your Bible or your app and you want to turn to Luke 16, uh, we're going to look at verses 19 through 26. 
Luke 16. Luke 16, verse 19 through 26. So Luke, um, Luke records this parable of Jesus, which begins like this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. This is a state of great shame for a Hebrew person to be in such destitution. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So this is much different, isn't it? than the concept of Sheol that Job tried to struggle his way through. We see here two alternatives, and these alternatives are in some ways representative of the last three questions we've been dealing with. We see that Lazarus has attained a state of comfort, a state of relief. While his life was miserable, his death led to a state that was better than his life. The opposite has happened for this other man whose name we don't even know. This rich man who was blessed in, in life and had financial riches and all that he needed didn't care for the things of the Lord and once his body expired, he finds himself not by the side of Abraham, not experiencing the blessings of promised land like his covenant brothers and sisters, but rather he finds himself in Hades, in the grave. And he is not just still in the grave, he's in torment there. Verse 24, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So this torment that we're talking about is, a, is expressed somewhat vividly here as an anguish uh, punctuated by burning, by a, a flame, by some kind of burning judgment. We know that in the Noahic covenant, Noah was promised that the world would know longer be judged with water in the way that it was in the day of Noah, but there was a, a sign pointing towards a final judgment that would happen with fire, not with water. And so it's interesting here to me that this man, this rich man, is experiencing a taste of that as his body is dead and now he finds himself in anguish far from his covenant family. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So two states, two intermediate states. One intermediate state is... Uh, belonging to those who are faithful to the Lord God, who put their faith and trust in Him. Now, I think this is a, a great evidence for those who say, well, did the Old Testament state experience salvation? And I think we can confidently say yes, that the Old Testament state uh, saint experienced salvation, and their salvation wasn't gotten to by a different path than ours was. Some mistakenly think that by obedience to the works of the law, that those Old Testament saints somehow earned their salvation. 
But if that was the case, what, what a tragedy, what a, a needless tragedy for Christ to go to a cross when all that really needed to happen was for us to be more obedient to the law and get more of it right. That's not how the Old Testament saint was saved. The Old Testament saint was saved by the blood of Christ, but they didn't have the language to articulate that. They didn't know how to express that. All they knew was what they, they were trusting the promises of God, that redemption belongs to the Lord, and Yahweh their God had said that he would bring a redeemer, and they trusted that day would come. So without having the name of Christ, they were able to trust in Christ. They were able to trust in the ways of God that were at that point much more mysterious than they are to us. Nevertheless, they were saved by the same Jesus. And so these two individuals, the poor beggar named Lazarus and a more prominent Jew whose name is not even mentioned, experienced these two intermediate states which are very different from each other. So the Jew began to think of the intermediate state of the faithful as this place called Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. Um, which is not completely defined in this text, and you're not going to find a lot more scripture about it. But it has a correlation to this idea of promised land and promise fulfilled. That Abraham was the one through which God initially had made his covenant to bring a people unto himself. And so Lazarus is numbered among Abraham's people and is with him, receiving those blessings and those promises that were covenanted with him initially. This is the same paradise that the believing thief on the cross next to Jesus entered into with Jesus immediately after he expired. And so this is this intermediate state before the body is restored in resurrection that the believer can look forward to. Prior to this, it was mysterious, and most shrugged it off or left it up to the sovereign will of God. But we see that through the exile, this theology began to develop, and you actually hear some grumblings about the Pharisees believing in a resurrection state of some kind, whereas the Sadducees were a different theological group who countered that and said, nope, when you die here, you go to the grave and that's all you get. Uh, but as we see, Christ affirmed the stance of the Pharisees and rejected the stance of the Sadducees. But the fate of those who die, whether a believer or not, this is not a mystery anymore. Scripture has given us much more to understand these concepts. And Jesus was not bashful to speak about hell. And we're going to speak about this more in the next question, in question 43. So I don't want to step on the toes of the next preacher. But Jesus spoke about hell pretty regularly. More than any other biblical author, Christ was not afraid to talk about the intermediate state and the final state. Um, for those who had not faith in Christ, the intermediate state was a time of prison, soul prison, where there was torments and anguish, but it didn't compare to the anguish that would come after that individual stood before the Lord God in the judgment seat, where all of his sins would be numbered and his responsibility for them would lay on his own shoulders. So Matthew 5.30, Matthew 8, 10 through 12, 13, 40 through 42, uh, Luke 16, 19 through 31. There are so many different passages of Scripture where we see Jesus speaking explicitly about hell and about judgment. And we're going to go through some of those uh, next time we get together for question 43. We do know that it is Jesus who holds the keys to the grave. Revelation 1, 17 through 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is John speaking. But he, Jesus, laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Remember, this is Jesus speaking in Revelation chapter 1. If you are arguing with somebody about whether Christ is truly divine or not, this is a great place to go because who else could rightfully be called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end? That is a, a title that only fits God himself. And so how can Jesus be called the Alpha, the beginning, 
if he himself has a created beginning. That's impossible. If he is Alpha and Omega, that means he has always existed alongside the Father and the Spirit. But here we see that another feature of Christ's strength is that he is alive forevermore. He died, but he is alive, meaning that he is the first of many who would be resurrected when enter into that final physical state. And not only is he alive again, but he holds these keys, the keys of death and Hades. So we cannot afford to neglect our understanding of this important doctrine. If we look in Jude, small book, uh, very near to the end of Scripture, in chapter 1, there's only one chapter there, verses 5 through 7. It says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. This was very important for those, especially who came from a covenant background, for those who were Hebrews and were now trusting in Jesus. It was important for them to endure with Christ, to continue to walk with Him. Because there were many who were saved out of Egypt who experienced the taste of salvation, yet they cared not for the covenant. They, they neglected the laws of God. They didn't continue to have faith in Him. So though they were physically saved from slavery in Egypt, their souls were not saved because they didn't have faith in the Lord God. And so this warning in Jude reminds us that there is a destruction awaiting for those who do not trust in Jesus. Verse 7 says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So when Sodom and Gomorrah, this place that was defined by sin, was destroyed by the fire of God that came down from heaven and wiped it out, almost like an atomic bomb. That was only a taste of the fire that those who reject Christ will experience forever. Their fire will be an eternal judgment. So judgment is just as real and is just as much a part of God's glory as salvation is. Do you understand that? We often really just focus on salvation as being the glory of the Lord. But because God is a God of love and a God of truth, both elements of salvation and judgment work in harmony to glorify our God and to give us the full picture of who he is as a God. The question that we're looking at tonight specifically draws our attention to the state of a non-believer's soul upon death. And it's not within the scope of the question to teach every facet of that individual's eternal state. But scripture leads us to understand that the body is laid in a grave, just like the body of a dead believer. But their soul enters into a type of spirit prison where they are held until the final day of judgment. And I forgot to go back and include some scriptures I wanted to talk about. First Peter, there's a confusing passage in First Peter, I think it's four, where it talks about how Jesus descended into Hades. And really what that passage is talking about is not that Christ went to hell for us, but that he went to the place where those who reject Christ were being held in prison to this grave. And there he preached victory over them. He preached triumph to show them that though they rejected him, that he is truly the Messiah that God had promised to the people. So it was a sermon of victory. It was not a time of him being condemned to hell because we know that he told the thief on the cross that he would be in paradise with that thief that same day. So Christ was never condemned to the prison of hell, uh, but rather he went and showed his triumph over it. Psalm 49, 14. What's that? What? Did you say that again? 
I'll talk to you about it a little bit afterwards because I don't think you're familiar with that verse in 1 Peter 3, so I think it would probably be more confusing than helpful to you unless we were to be able to sit down and look at that verse together, okay? Psalm 49, 14 says, Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. So Psalm 49 here is talking about the wicked who don't trust in the Lord God. And from this, we understand that they are without a body in Sheol as well. This is a spirit prison. Just like the believer has lost their physical body when they die here on earth, they go to an intermediate state that is spiritual. They can worship alongside the Lord God in a spiritual sense, this idea of Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. In a converse way, the wicked, they've lost their physical body for a time, but their soul is confined to a spiritual prison. There will be a day when their spirit is reunited with their flesh, that being the, the day of judgment, and their full guilt will be rendered upon their shoulders on both the immaterial and the material aspects of who they are. So those who are in soul prison, they, they await a final judgment where they're going to come before the king of kings and they're going to plead their case. But unlike the believer, they're going to plead their case without the help of an advocate. There will be no mediators stand by their side and say, yes, they are guilty. Yes, they deserve the wrath of God, but I have experienced that wrath in full. That is the blessing that we have as believers, that when we come before the throne of judgment, that all of our sins will be laid bare, but Christ will testify that he has paid every last one of them himself. So this Jesus who is perfectly pure suffered like the murderer, suffered like the, the scandalous adulterer, suffered like the liar, like the thief. He suffered in the place of those who trust him so that our sins would be put to death and punished eternally because they absolutely must be punished eternally. Remember we spoke a second ago about how both salvation and judgment show us the glory of God. And um, unfortunately, we live in a time when, when people have such a, a a bitter taste in their mouth about judgment. They don't want to think about it at all. They've tried to re-engineer God as a God who is only loving and is not particularly interested in being true. This is from John MacArthur in 2014. He says, According to recent polls, some 81% of adult Americans believe in heaven and fully 80% expect to go there when they die. But by comparison, about 61% believe in hell. So about 20% less believe there's really a hell. But less than 1% think that it's likely they will go to hell. In other words, a slight majority of Americans still believe hell exists, but genuine fear of hell is almost non-existent. So what good does it do you to think there possibly is a hell if there's really no chance that you think you'll go there? That doesn't seem like, like a, a logical way of thinking about the eternal state. We think about hell and about the terror of it. And I want to ask the question tonight, is it inappropriate to urge someone to repentance and faith in Jesus by painting a vivid picture of the horrors of hell? What do you think? Do you think it's inappropriate to preach in such a, such a terrible way where you, you, you point to the, the destruction that is to come for those who are without Christ? Is it wrong to do that? Somebody knows where we're going here in just a second, right? Yeah, if you read the Puritans, who are, they're not perfect men, but they were very important 
to establishing really good doctrine for the church today that we benefit from like a, like a wonderful fountain uh, today, they were not afraid to preach about hell. And these are men that loved Christ and they loved to preach the gospel to try to save people from damnation. They loved the opportunity that they had to, to proclaim Christ and to see people redeemed. That was important to them. They were very missional people. And yet they did not shy away from the doctrine of hell. And in fact, what I'm going to do tonight uh, is I'm going to read you a rather lengthy excerpt from one of the most famous sermons ever preached in American history. Uh, it is from the Puritan Jonathan Edwards, and it is a sermon that's titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So don't think I am plagiarizing here. This is plainly not mine. This is way better than I preach, so uh, not trying to steal this. I'm just trying to share with you something that is historically beneficial to the church and would do us well to think about because you don't hear preaching like this very often. So this is from Jonathan Edwards. He preached, and this is just a portion of his sermon. He says, Thus it is that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as to those who are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate his anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up for one moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would fain lay hold on them and swallow them up. The fire pent up in their own hearts is struggling to break out. And they have no interest in any mediator. There are no means within reach that can be any security to them. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance of an incensed God. So this is part of the most controversial aspect of this sermon is that Jonathan Edwards does not shy away from the fact that God hates sin and that if we don't have Christ to cover our sin, then God's wrath belongs fully upon us. He goes on to say, the use of this awful subject may be for awakening unconverted persons in this congregation. He's saying that this is to wake you up. This that you have heard is the case of every one of you that are out of Christ. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad underneath you. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open and you have nothing to stand upon nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. So he's speaking about how now, as enemies to God, those who don't have Christ should be in hell already. He could have justifiably put them right into hell the first time they sinned. He could have done that to us. He goes on to say, you probably are not sensible of this, meaning you don't think this way about your life, right? You don't walk through life thinking that I'm, I'm two steps from hell right now. But he's trying to encourage them to, to consider the weight of this. He says, you probably are not sensible of this. You find you are kept out of hell, but do not see the hand of God in it. But look at other things. As the good state of your bodily constitution, you care, your care of your own life and the means that you use for your own preservation. In other words, you think you're out of hell because you're doing a good job of taking care of yourself. That's not the case. It says, but indeed, these things are nothing. If God should withdraw his band, they would no, avail you no more to keep you from falling than the thin air to hold up a person that is suspended in it. 
your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf, and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance in all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. That's the end of the quote. Think about the weight that Edwards puts upon how we should have a terror of this hell. It is terrible because it is terrible, not because we're trying to scare people into salvation. People often oppose this kind of preaching on a number of grounds. They argue that God is not a God of hate, but a God of love. But this misrepresents God, doesn't it? God, because he is good, must hate what is evil. He has to oppose what is wrong. And you do too. If you are consistent, when you hear on the news about a child being abducted and forced into the sex trades, doesn't that make you angry? Don't you want to put your wrath upon those who would do things like that? When you hear about these huge schemes where old people, their, their life savings are, are robbed away from them with false promises, and you see that somebody's off living on a yacht while these old people are starving to death because they lost all of their retirement to these con men, don't you feel anger about that? Don't you believe that that kind of sin deserves punishment and wrath? I confess that I do, and I also confess that it's not wrong. Because God hates sin too. He hates the sin that you do as well. It doesn't make the news, right? Your sin doesn't get a whole lot of attention like those mass murderers or like the guy down here on James Donlin that tried to shoot the cops and set the neighborhood on fire. But your sin is just as real and is a defense against God. And so God, being good, must punish sin, just because a well-respected preacher like Jonathan Edwards does something or preaches something that doesn't necessarily make it right. And so our litmus test is not Jonathan Edwards. Our litmus test is the testimony of Scripture. If the Word says it, we are not only allowed to preach it, we are responsible to preach it. So is God no longer a God of wrath? Has the anger that we see famously in the Old Testament been quenched, replaced by a more tolerant, less legalistic God, a live-and-let-live God? Well, the Apostle Paul doesn't think so. In Romans 1.18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is not past tense. This is not Paul saying, Well, back in the old days, the wrath of God was on the unrighteous. No, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is current, present tense. So the Apostle Paul doesn't think that God has stopped having wrath against sin. The Apostle John doesn't think that way either. Listen to Revelation 19.15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So John sees the truth. He's been given a picture of the future, and he knows that God will surely destroy the works of the wicked and that those who have opposed him and broken his law, if they don't have Christ, are standing in the crosshairs of his right judgment. Does Jesus think that God is now a, a softer, gentler God? Or does Jesus believe that God still has a burning, righteous hatred of sin? 
Listen to what he says in John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It doesn't say it will remain. It says it remains on him even now. So when we have a lost loved one who is walking around without Christ right now, we have to take stock of the seriousness of the situation. The wrath of God is currently fixed upon them. You sometimes see it in a movie where somebody's walking unaware and the little red dot shines on their head. What does that mean? That's a laser sight, right? They're about to get shot at. So it is almost as if the, the unbeliever who has not Christ, they are in the crosshairs. The missiles are locked on. Judgment is waiting for them. But because of God's mercy, he chooses to hold them over the flames instead of letting them go. God currently, continually has mercy on these until the day they die, until they no longer can confess that their sins are real and repent of them and turn to the living Christ. It's a miracle, and it's an amazing miracle that God would have mercy on us like that, that he would withhold his wrath because his wrath is good. His wrath is purifying. His wrath is, wrath is justified, and it is righteous. God hates sin because it is contrary to everything that is good in him. He is obligated to be opposed to it because it has no part in God. Sin is in many ways the absence of godliness. When we sin, it's like we're running away from God. We're trying to be far from him. And so that's what happens when we don't draw near and abide in the Lord. Sin manifests itself. As the Apostle John says in his first letter, 1 John 1, 5-7, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. None. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What the God of light opposes has got to be dealt with. It has to be judged eventually. This is the only option. And we know that because of the lengths that Jesus went to in order to secure our salvation and redemption. He had to die on the cross. There was not another way. We talked about the Old Testament saints being saved. There wasn't a way to be saved through the law. The law was there, Paul tells us, as a tutor to show us that the only way for us to be saved is for God himself to come down and do it because we could not do it for ourselves. And he had to do it. In Matthew 26, 39, when he is in the garden, he's agonizing over this fate that lies before him. And he says to the Father, if there is any other way, if it is possible for this cup to pass from my lips, please, Lord, let it be so. But nevertheless, your will be done and not my own. Was there another way? There surely was not. If God was going to redeem this people for himself, he had to put sin to death. He had to let his wrath in full pour out upon that sin. If he did not, God would not be just. If God just expunged the record and let us all go into heaven with sin never being punished, he would no longer be a just God and all of creation would be in jeopardy. How could the world and the universe be upheld by the word of his power if his word is no good? He must punish sin. So the beautiful miracle of salvation is that for the people he is drawn to himself, he punished our sin on himself so that he would not have to punish us. He bore the wrath reserved for me. And so 
exactly what about Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon is false? Why should we push back against preaching like that? Isn't hell real? Yes, hell is real. Jesus holds the key to Hades. The gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of heaven. God cannot, or God can cast the wicked soul into hell, can't he? It is better to cut off your hand or pluck out your eye than it is to sin and risk going into hell, right? Again and again, the scripture tells us that, that hell is a real place, and so it needs to be preached about. Doesn't God hate sin? Yes, he does. Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Listen to that. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. How does God feel about sin? He's not hiding it. He hates sin. Doesn't God promise to punish the wicked? As Edwards preached about, yes, he promises it. And more than that, he must do it. As a function of his character, as a responsibility as God, he has to punish the wicked. Either directly or he has to punish the substitute for their sins. He has to punish Christ in their place. Isn't the punishment for sin eternal death? Not just annihilation, as some have enjoyed preaching about. We're going to talk more about next time. Annihilation is the idea that maybe God in his great mercy has decided just to end the lives of the wicked so that they won't have to go on forever in torment. This concept of eternal suffering is too much for the human mind to bear. And so we try to help God out. We try to bend our theology around our sensibilities. But that's not what the scripture preaches to us about judgment. His judgment is not just an annihilation. It's not just the end of the wicked. Listen to Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15 and try to fit annihilation into this passage. You cannot. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each of them according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Some of the passages that we read earlier talked about that lake, didn't they? And they talked about it as an everlasting lake of fire. So isn't the, what's that? That's hell. That's hell. Isn't the fear of God the beginning of knowledge, friends? Don't we learn that in Proverbs? And aren't even redeemers uh, or believers who are redeemed encouraged to fear God and to keep his commandments? Isn't fear a legitimate motivator if the object of fear is truly a threat to the fearful? That's one thing to be afraid of something that may or may not happen. It's one thing to be afraid of something that sounds dangerous but really isn't. But it's another thing altogether to recognize the power of an omnipotent, all-knowing God and to be in awe and wonder of that fear. So what is wrong with preaching the terror of the truth if it is truly terrible? What would be more cruel, in fact, to know that these things are true, to have the word of God before us and the Holy Spirit to interpret it for us, to know that God hates sin and that sinners are rightfully damned before him by their actions unless he saves them by his son Jesus and gives them an alien righteousness that can cover them and, and, and redeem them? 
to know that and to choose to not say a word about it, to choose to pretend like it's not real, is that worse or is it worse to know it and to plead with those who are lost to see the danger of their rebellious state, to plead with them that they need Christ, to identify their, their failing before the law of God and to beg for the mercy of God who not only has the right to execute them but promises to do so if they don't have Christ. Which one is more cruel to say nothing about this terrible fate that people are headed towards or to do all that you can to warn them of it, to be honest about it, and to help them to understand that apart from Jesus, they have no hope? Why is it important to speak about damnation and the inevitable end of those who are not in Christ Jesus? Because hell is not some kind of religious boogeyman that we made up to keep our kids in line. It is the true destination to all who are not in Christ. It is real. And nobody that I love, I don't want any of them to go there. Be honest, nobody that I hate do I want them to go there. It is such a terrible thing to think of. Why are we not preaching the truth more than we are? Why are we not out there loving people? How can we stay as quiet as we have stayed? Why do we need to preach this, this damnation and this hell? Because it is real. And we fail to love those who are headed to this judgment if we do not try to warn them. Now, you don't have the power to stop them. If they don't want Christ, if they want to reject Christ, they have the freedom to do that. But you do have the freedom to preach the truth to them and to give them what they need to see, whether or not they see it is not your responsibility. God is glorified in the destruction of the wicked, friends. He's not only glorified in the salvation of the saints. And some might balk at this, but if they do, they are inconsistent at best and disingenuous at worst because we all truly hate sin if we think about it, even the sin we see in ourselves. We know that it deserves punishment. So what is the practical outflow of this undeniable biblical truth? How does it change how we live, folks? What do we do differently now that we've heard this? It should humble us, shouldn't it? Should humble us. Shouldn't it give us a sense of thankfulness that though we were dangling over that fiery pit, then His grace, not only did He pull us back from it, but He put us in His bosom, He put us near to Him, that we are now safe with Him and not in the dangers of hell's fire anymore. I didn't deserve that. I know that you didn't either. So shouldn't we be thankful about the salvation that we've been given, that we've been spared this wrath that we truly did earn by our rebellion? Should it cause us to have a heart for the loss that is more desperate and more bold and more willing to plead the truth? Because if we don't, what's going to happen to that person? If the truth is not preached to them, how are they going to know that they need to repent? The practical outflow of this undeniable biblical truth, I think, is communicated well in Luke 12, 4 through 5, where Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Fear him. And notice that he says, I tell you, my friends. So he's speaking primarily there to believing disciples that they are to have a healthy fear for the Lord God. And it is appropriate. It's absolutely appropriate for a non-believer to fear the Lord, isn't it? Yes. The wrath of God is what they've earned by their disobedience and their neglect from God. No weapon that is fashioned against God can stand against him. So though a rebel to the kingdom of heaven, that individual who's in sin, doesn't have Jesus, is no match for God. He's no threat to the kingdom. 
He's just simply in danger himself. He's about to get run over by this unstoppable force. No power that the reprobate can align themselves with apart from God has any hope of gaining even an inch in their favor over the omnipotent creator. So I always, my heart breaks for these people who get caught up in the occult or worshiping Satan and think they can somehow align themselves with this powerful force of evil and that it's going to somehow keep them from the judgment of God. They're absolutely deceived. And their king calls himself the king of deceivers. It's sad. There is no hope apart from Christ. And so there is reason for these non-believers to fear the Lord. Because the Lord does not change, and he cannot tell a lie, the eternal state of man will not change unless God is the one who changes it through salvation. So if you are not a believer, don't flee. There's nowhere for you to go. Do not fight against God. There's no way you can beat him. There's no hope for victory over him. Do not live in denial and act like there's nothing to be afraid of. Time will march on whether you acknowledge the truth of judgment or not. There is only one course of action to take. Repent. Acknowledge your sin. Learn to hate your sin with the hatred that God has for your sin. Confess your sin before God and admit that you deserve the wrath that you know is upon you. But pray that repentance with confidence that Jesus Christ has the power to save you despite your wickedness. And he enjoys to do so. Do not delay another moment in putting your faith and trust in Jesus. He is your only hope and apart from him, every victory that you seem to win in this life is only delaying the inevitable judgment that is sure to come if you do not have Jesus as your mediator. So if you are not a believer, please fear the Lord. Do not pretend like he is some small God or some joke. He is the real deal and his judgment is coming. But is it appropriate for a believer to fear the Lord? Absolutely it is. Whether a powerful force is for you against or against you, it is only wise to have a cautious respect for that power. Like a good father who keeps his house in order, the Lord God is not afraid to discipline the children that he loves if they are in need of experiencing his correction. Hebrews 12 verses 5 through 11 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so to think about God as basically an ineffective force for good that's never going to correct you or chastise you is to misunderstand God. He is not just your friend. He is your father. And he cares for the righteousness of his son being lived out in your life. So it is what is best for us to be chastised by him when we go astray. Though we are recipients of grace and we are no longer enemies of God, God has in no way been put below us by this, nor have we been risen to the status of equal with him. He remains over us as God. He loves us but he is greater than us and he has responsibility for us. 
So there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus the Lord. Romans 8, 1 assures us of that. We are not in a position of terror in regards to God where we have to tremble every night wondering if God's going to change his mind or revoke his promises. That's not the kind of fear that we're called to have of God. But his promise does not render him our slave. He is our father and he is our shepherd still. So fear his discipline, but also take comfort in his rod and his staff, knowing that they are ever intended for your blessing and your benefit. So that was kind of long. Apologize for that, but uh, we do have a little bit of time for discussion. So if anybody has any questions, I'll do my best to answer them. Some of them might be put off a little bit if they have more to do with the next question than this one, but I'll do my best. Linda. You know, that's a good question, and um, I wrestle with that because what does it hope to accomplish? If the sinner is, w- does not have Christ, then the wrath of God is currently upon them. So I think when it comes to our instruction, because we are not judge, I think it is appropriate to instruct man to care for his enemy and to love the lost, knowing that he too was lost. So we can love the sinner without loving the sin that they do. We can love the sinner and at the same time oppose their sin and have a righteous anger towards their sin and admonish the sin and urge them to repent of that sin. But I think that it would be wrong to say that God loves the sinner and hates the sin because God only sees the righteousness of Christ or the full wickedness of sin upon an individual. So until we're covered in the righteousness of Christ, uh, His wrath burns for us and He is merciful. So we see a common grace where even... Those who are in wrath. For a time, I wasn't with Christ, right? You weren't with Christ. And God did not just extinguish you. He didn't just put you out of his creation. He endured your sin for a time. And praise God that he's willing to do that. Um, I would say that it is, it is okay to encourage a human being to say that they are to love the sinner but hate the sin. But I also think that is a little simplistic because I think there are times when somebody is clearly choosing sin and against Christ, and we can oppose them. And we need to learn to oppose sin. Um, not in a way that forgets that we too have been shown mercy, but there are times when we need to stand up and show a resolve against sin. And that sometimes means we need to be, show a resolve against sinners too. Because some people love sin, and they have no intention of turning from it. That's not to say that God can't change them. But in that moment, there are times when you need to stand against what is wicked. Good question. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Just, um, I think too, like, I like what you said at the last part, because we can get into this fluffy idea of what love is and forget that God is holy and he commanded us to be holy for I am holy. Yeah. I think, I always think of that verse, and I know we all violate this, that fools mock at sin, right? But with the upright there is favor. So when we think about what the consequences of sin, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. I mean, mm-hmm. we think about that, you know, in a temporal sense, and we're like, man, okay, we see all the sin, but God sees things as holes, right? And so the Lord knows who are his, right? Let everyone who names the name of Christ yeah. depart from iniquity. So yeah. it's not like... I like how you made that distinction because it's not like we're God and we get to see 
from eternity past who his elect, who his beloved are. You know. Yeah, I don't have that list. (laughs) You know what I mean? God has that list. So election is real. Predestination is true. But in my practical outplay of evangelism, and I have to treat everybody as a potential brother or sister. You know, and, and there are times when for the sake of other potential brothers and sisters, I have to oppose somebody who's clearly in sin and has embraced wickedness and is a threat to the people around me. And, a, and, and that's hard to make that call sometimes. Um, I think that pacifism in Christianity is a slippery slope. And I think that it, it, it prevents you from proclaiming the truth if you let the wicked walk all over the righteous and the weak. So um, I know you share the same heart about that, John. But... Uh, but it's tough to, tough to really help people to understand when the time is right. And it's not like there's a, just a formula where you can instantly, you've got to trust the Spirit to lead you through times like that. It's very, very difficult when you have to make this discerning judgment at times about when you really need to just oppose somebody who's, who's a deceiver or a wolf or in sheep's clothing. So it's, it can be tough. Christine. I have a couple questions. Okay. When you're saying that God has the non-believer and his crosshairs, yes, that he that, that non-believer should be afraid or is afraid, yeah, of the wrath of God. Yes. Well, how can they be afraid of the wrath of God if they don't believe? Yeah, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be afraid. You know, if a little child wanders into a gorilla enclosure. They should be afraid of that gorilla, whether or not they have the presence of mind to be afraid of it, because they are in danger whether they know it or not. And if they had a greater fear, they would be cautious. Um, so I, you, know, you urge them to fear. You, you proclaim the truth that God is, is a dangerous God because he has got the power to judge every one of us, and he has the right to do it. And in fact, he will do it. And if we don't have Christ, then we have no hope of escaping that wrath. So you have to help people to be to see God rightly. If someone's deceived, you have to do the best you can to pull the wool off of their eyes so they can see the truth about God. Uh, this picture that the world is painted of God and you know what passes for Christianity in the West today has painted a picture of a God who really just wants to help your life be better. It's not a God who demands truth or a God who has a glory that needs to be preserved and needs to be proclaimed in the world and all creation. It's just a God who's interested in you and wants to be near to you. And that's very short-sighted. I think that we are blessed to be near to God because he's a God of glory and truth. And if he redeems us, then that's for our benefit. Um, He will display his glory in that redemption, but we don't add anything to his glory. He has always been good. He's always been worthy. We don't make him worthy by becoming his. He makes us blessed by letting us be his. So we're always in the position of gratitude and are always indebted to the Lord. Okay, and the other one was, and I think you talked about it in your sermon a bit today, about the telling of Jesus coming a thousand years before he came. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I forgot. Um, Even more than a thousand years before he came, because in the third chapter of Genesis, we get a brief snapshot of how God intended to redeem his people. When Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, and they're being judged for their first sins and and being cast out with curses, the serpent is also judged in that moment. And 
the Lord proclaims that the seed of woman, that Eve's offspring, and he's speaking of Jesus in that moment, that the offspring of woman will bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent's head will bruise his foot so that he will be damaged in the process, but he will bring judgment and destruction to the enemy. So there, as early as the third chapter of the Bible, we have a picture of redemption. Um, that story of Christ saving us radically by his own power is in every page of Scripture. I mean, throughout the Word, there, that whole story is being set up everywhere you read the Word. So it's important for us to read the Word through that lens, to know that God's big picture story is to redeem a people for his glory and for their good. He does it through Christ. John. I like the contrast to uh, what you had said earlier about Sheol versus a promised land. It just it kind of painted a picture of the type, the antitype of um, you know the grave is real, right? Mm-hmm. But in Psalm forty nine, that's one of my favorite texts to use when I'm talking to a JW or or one of my Jewish buddies because they deny the reality of hell. And so I was mm-hmm. like, well, how can his soul go to this grave, right? And it kind of is an 800 pound gorilla for them because they're like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> You've got an immaterial yeah. you know, soul that has left the body and it's going down to this physical grave. Well, what does that really mean, right? Mm-hmm. So if you read in some of their commentaries, some of the things of the old time, they believed in an afterlife, right? Well, if there's an afterlife for the righteous, then there must be an afterlife for the wicked, right? And like you said, we don't see that theology developed. Until mm-hmm. later, but you know the antitype for the promised land obviously would be heaven, right? Right. For the grave would be hell. So. Yeah. But they're both realities, and so mm-hmm. you had also mentioned something about um, you know how God equally is glorified between you know deliverance, salvation, yeah. as well as justice. George Whitfield said, "If God is not glorified in your salvation, He'll be glorified in your destruction." Right. Yeah. And so we don't add, like you said, anything. Which we don't. We're supposed to do. When we've done all these things. Then we should say we're unprofitable servants. Right? Yeah. And we've done the things we're supposed to do, right? And another humbling thing to think about is when you reflect on your own sin as a believer, that those sins don't just get wiped away. Those sins get punished, but Christ suffers for you for those sins. So every sin that you commit, Christ suffered for that. He bled for it. And so think about that. Like we should not take our sin lightly at all, even though. We are redeemed and we know that that sin will not lead to an eternal destruction if we are in Christ. But why would we subject our Savior to that kind of suffering, knowing that God's righteousness requires him to punish Christ for it? It had to be on him or on us, and it's on Christ. So when we continue to walk in sin, we do dishonor to this God who has given us so much mercy and grace in the Son. So. No sin is just forgotten. You know, and I, I know people who've gone through tremendous suffering and have suffered at the hands of other people's sin. And for them to know that none of those sins is unpunished is really important. That God ultimately applies justice to every sin that is committed. But that if it's committed by a believer, then that wrath falls on Christ. And that's just hard to like take that in and, and to think that God would love us that much to suffer in our place like that. He literally became a curse for us. Yes. That's probably one of the reasons why it's kind of hard to take the curse and blessing motif because it's like his mm. curse 
resulted in, a, in the ultimate blessing for our souls, right? Yeah. Deliverance, I mean, for all eternity. Amen. Well, let me close this in a word of prayer, if it's all right. Sorry to keep you guys so late. It's almost 8 o'clock. Let's just thank the Lord for our time together. Almighty God, we, we humbly come before you, Lord, and I take comfort in knowing that, um, that when you look through the record of Scripture, whenever a human being is approached by an angel, the nearly universal response is for them to, to fall down in terror. But for those whom you are drawing near to yourself, your response to them was almost constantly, do not be afraid. I'm here for your good. And so we thank you, Lord God, that though we should have a healthy fear for you, that it doesn't have to be a terror that trembles at the possibility of you breaking covenant or not keeping your promise because it's impossible for you to not keep your promise. But Father, let us not lose track of the seriousness of your power and of your commitment to justice and righteousness, Lord. And help us to remember that though you are our Savior, you are also Father over us. So Yahweh, uh, let us know that you have every right to correct us, to chastise our hearts if we need it, to let us experience some, just a taste of, of the consequences of our sin, though we know that the ultimate payment for it is on Christ. Help us to respect you, Lord God. Help us to have a reverence for you. And help us not to hate the lost by failing to speak the truth of their consequence if they don't have Christ. We thank you, God, for salvation in Jesus. We know that it can happen by no other name. And so it's in that name that we pray. Amen. Amen.